Um, so as we turn to the Sermon on the Mount, we're going to pick up the idea of how we invest our lives. And Jesus has been teaching his disciples what it means to follow him. You know, he's ascended a mountain. They've gathered around him. He's like the new Moses, the better Moses, giving the, the new covenant uh, up on the mountain with the disciples around him. Uh, and the first words out of his mouth are about the blessing he gives in upside-down kind of ways. Blessed are the poor in spirit, those who mourn, who hunger and thirst, because they will be satisfied, because they will be comforted, because they will see God, because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then spent the rest of chapter 5, kind of jumping off from that, looking at uh, from the, ten, uh, the last five of the Ten Commandments, meditating on how what it means to be faithful and obedient and, and truly righteousness, truly righteous, goes all the way down to our whole lives, a whole life of righteousness, inside and out, given to the character of God. So he says, you must be perfect like your heavenly Father is perfect. Not doing religious things on the outside while the inside is twisted up with anger and lust and greed, uh, but in and out, entirely whole, as God is whole. And then he warned us at the beginning of chapter 6 about being aware uh, of the audience that we're trying to demonstrate our righteousness to. It's very easy to take God's good gifts and good practices and twist them into self-serving ways. To do our good works in front of people to be seen by them. And then pressed us that uh, at least some of the good works we do really must be done so that no one sees or hears about them except God. Trusting that our Father in heaven who sees in secret will reward you. And so this week and the next, we'll finish up with chapter 6, where Jesus turns from the ways that we turn godly actions into selfish ones, and to show how we have to be on guard for the way that God's good gifts can ensnare and enslave us. Good practices can be twisted into selfish practices for ourselves, and God's good gifts can turn into snares and enslave us, and they rob us of the lasting good God can give us. So we'll, we'll look at that half this week, there's two, that big point covered in two, two sermons this week and next. We'll look at chapters 6, verses 19 through 24 today. So think about investing our lives, what we do with what God has given us. So chapter 6, verse, starting in verse 19. Don't, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other. Or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So Jesus groups these three sort of groups of sayings together that really read a little bit like they're Proverbs. We just went through the Proverbs and you read through the Proverbs. Remember how there's like just nuggets of wisdom kind of smashed together that we try to learn together. And so we have a, we have a uh, three verses on eternal treasure and then a couple of verses on good and evil eyes and then a final verse on... Uh, masters and money. Uh, and it really sounds like, and commentators have noticed, that uh, Jesus really kind of adopts this, this, the style of Solomon in this section. He tries to press us in how to live wisely in the world. I don't think that's a mistake. He started with the law of Moses at the beginning of the sermon. He's moving into wisdom teaching uh, as he then will end in chapter 7 with very prophetic calls to choose this way and not that way and follow God and uh, uh, 
Like, so he sort of, in, the, in this one sermon, works through the entire Old Testament style. Um, and we turn to the wisdom, wisdom sort of ways today. As we think about God, Jesus is pressing here us, uh, pressing us here um, to serve God and not our stuff. And that's, I think, the main point here. Serve God and not your stuff. And invest in eternal joy. Serve God, not your stuff, and invest in eternal joy. The temptation is ever-present is to serve the stuff we can see. To make what we are aware of immediately in our lives what's most important to us. And Jesus would press us. Your righteousness must go down to your soul, in and out, perfect like your father. The practices you do to cultivate that life of righteousness should be done for him and not for the world. And your treasure, your hopes, your security should be anchored in what he has done in Christ, not what you can accrue for yourself on earth. So serve God, not your stuff, and invest in eternal joy. And so I've hinted at the outline already, but we'll, we'll look at verses 19 through 21, eternal treasure. Uh, verses 22 and 23, evil eyes. And verse 24, the inevitable choice we have to make. And I, I think just going to, as a heads up, it goes from three verses to two verses to one, and the points will go about that length, from longer to shorter as we go. Uh, so point one, eternal treasure. Um, and Jesus presses us to invest in eternal reward. Invest in an eternal reward. Uh, some popular manhood material urges men with that kind of phrasing, like live for the greater reward. Not for what you can get right now, not for what you can carve out for yourself, it's the eternal reward that is coming. That's what Jesus has been saying all of chapter 6. Don't practice your righteousness before people. Practice it in secret before your Father, because your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And now Jesus urges us to resist the temptation to trade that reward for the paltry stuff of the world. Don't, don't lay all yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay them up in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys and thieves don't break in and steal. <clears throat> Bank accounts and investments, square footage and cars, gadgets and gear, clothing and shoes. I mean, there's just all kinds of ways that we can store up earthly treasure. The easiest thing is to think about bank accounts and financial uh, security, those kinds of things. But not anything that we amass for ourselves that we look to give us life and joy and hope, security, comfort. I mean, those are all can be earthly treasures that we store up. So the obvious ones I've kind of mentioned, right? Gadgets, gear, clothes, cars. Maybe some less obvious ones, too, are worth thinking about. Trying to build a good reputation is a way to store up an earthly treasure. Or uh, growing a network of friends to secure yourself. I'm going to make it through. I know I'm worth it. I know my life's worth living if I've got this network of friends around me. Building, even building strong family bonds between parents and children across generations. Now those, those are all good things. They can be really good things. All these things are gifts from God. And yet they can all be twisted into inordinate loves, idolatrous affections, that we begin to center our lives on those things instead of on obedience to the Lord. So he commands us not to store them up. And maybe we can start unpacking that by, by uh, saying what he isn't commanding. Uh, if you get the wrong ideas out of your head, maybe you'll listen, as I, my heart is tempted to, to, to what Jesus is actually saying. So we, what he's not saying is that earthly treasure is inherently evil. Right? Money's not inherently evil. That, Bigger house is not inherently sinful. Uh, he certainly is not telling you shouldn't love your kids. <laughs> That's not what he's saying. He's not saying these things of earth are inherently evil. He doesn't say you can't enjoy all the good things God gives you. 
And if you're tempted to think that, Paul is so explicit. 1 Timothy 4, 4 and 5 tells us everything created by God, that's all the stuff of the earth, everything created by God. And in the context, Paul particularly has in mind food and marriage, and marital intimacy particularly, but all, all of the things created by God, everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving, for it's made holy by the word of God in prayer. God has given us richly all good things to enjoy. So when Jesus says don't store up earthly treasure, what he's not saying is that earthly stuff is inherently evil. No, God made it. Everything can be good if it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. If it's received with the right heart and used in the right way for the right purpose, you can enjoy everything that God has given you. You can enjoy the life that God has called you to live. We can take the creation that is good and delightful and revel in it even as a gift from our creator. But what he forbids, what Jesus is forbidding, is hoarding those good things for ourselves. Taking those good gifts and clinging to them as if they're ours. To do with what we want, to make us secure or comfortable or happy on our terms. Instead, what Jesus says, if we're wise, we will orient our whole lives around storing treasure in heaven. And that may be less obvious. How do we do that? I understand how to put money in a bank account. I understand how to, now I understand, uh, how to, you know, work out home loans and get property. I understand how to store that up. How do I store up treasure in heaven? Well, it's been a couple of weeks, but that's what Jesus has been saying, right? Uh, if you pray in secret because you're drawing near to God, your heavenly Father sees what you do and say in secret and will reward you. If you give for others, if you love your neighbor as yourself, if you use the resources you've been given to, to serve the needy, and you do it in secret, not to gain praise from others, but because you love God and love your neighbor, your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Fasting is the last topic Jesus addressed. If you fast in secret, if you mourn for sin and grieve over the brokenness of the world, and deny yourself earthly food for a time to draw near to God, and you do that in secret, not to be seen by others, but because you're sincerely drawing near to God in mourning and grief and asking him to act, your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So those are the three Jesus mentioned immediately, but all of the ways that we obey God and serve him faithfully, store up treasure in heaven. Our Father, who reigns over heaven and earth, sees our righteousness, our faithfulness, our obedience to his Son, our Lord Jesus, and he will reward you. He has given earthly gifts. He will give eternal gifts. And Jesus urges us, seek the eternal ones. Treasure the eternal ones. Orient your life around the eternal ones. He, he ends, and near the end of Matthew, Matthew tells us about Jesus relating to what we call the parable of the talents. In Matthew 25, it would be a great thing to read through and meditate on, on this, this line. You know, Jesus gathers, he tells a story to kind of talk about what the kingdom is like, about a landowner who goes away and calls his servants and gives them talents, which is money, uh, five talents, two talents, one talent says, go invest that. And when I come back, I'll make a return. And the ones who do it well hear from their master. When he comes back, you've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he's telling us that so that we'll do what he's instructing us to do here. Right at the end of Matthew, that goes so much to the beginning of Matthew. Uh, just across the board, this is the way Matthew has organized his gospel. So when Jesus tells us to store up treasures in heaven... We read the end of the book, like, oh, that's how I do it. 
everything Jesus has given you, time, talent, treasure, everything Jesus has given you, you use to fulfill the prayer he taught us to pray. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we do business for the sake of the master. We take what he's given us and we use it to faithfully honor him, to seek his kingdom first. He will give us a good and generous reward when he returns. He is a good and generous king, the son of a good and generous father. And so the first motivation Jesus presses on us here to say, man, don't grab for yourself what seems like security and comfort and joy here. Enjoy those good gifts, it's fine. But what you want to be grabbing, what you want to be pursuing is eternal faithfulness to Jesus and the reward he will give you forever. And the first motive is, is, is our sense of security. He really wants you to see, I really want us to see, and I, and much my own heart as I want it for you, is that no matter how secure you think your worldly treasure is, it's not. I mean, no matter how diversified your investments are or how spread out your network of friends and resources are, you know, if you've got sort of the end of the world doomsday prepper kind of mentality and you know the people who can get you the goods when everything falls apart and you think that's secure or whatever, you know, whatever that worldly treasure is, the clothes will wear out, the cars rust, houses get hit by hailstorms or termites, stock markets crashed, investments are lost, families get crossed with each other, relationships get broken. And even if none of that happens... You are going to die. And you can't take a bit of it with you. To quote Charles Studd, missionary, uh, only one life, which will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Anything you think is giving you joy and security and stability in this life is going to be gone and will not go with you. Moth and rust consume. Thieves break in and steal. Powers that be, economic forces, whatever it is, the consequence of our sin, which is our death. Nothing we could put our hope in in this world will secure us. Nothing we can amass to think we've got control can, you know, position ourselves to handle whatever comes, nothing is secure. But what is secure is everything that God holds in store for us in Christ. So Peter says in 1 Peter 1, he has an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading that is being kept in heaven for you. Believer in Christ. Moths can't get it. Rust can't consume it. Thieves can't take it. The strong man Satan has been cast out. No one and nothing can keep from you what God has in store. Would you not be shrewd, wise, to make the investment that can't be taken, that won't wear out, and is guaranteed to give you the best return and is eternally secure? That's what Jesus appeals to us. He doesn't say, you're so wicked for wanting to take care of yourselves. No, he says, you don't know how to do it. Not that you're so wicked, it's just you're so dumb. You don't know what's really secure. What's really secure is my Father's good gifts. And we in our sin turn our backs on him and think we could do it ourselves. 
So repent and trust. Another missionary, Jim Elliott, wrote in his journal 74 years ago last week, on October 28, 1949. Jim Elliott wrote, He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep. And he was talking about everything, his life, and he would give his life to gain what he cannot lose. So that's the first contrast Jesus makes for us. Man, pursue what God will give. Treasures in heaven, the rewards of faithfulness and obedience and righteousness. Cling to those things because you're clinging to him. Don't, don't, don't cling to this stuff. It feels solid. It feels secure. You can hold the money in your hand. You can, you know, if you trade money for silver because precious metals are more durable than fiat currency, fine. You can hold that in your hand. You can hold the food stores in your hand. You can feel the clothes. <clears throat> you can stand on the foundation. It's all going to go. Feel secure, it's not. Cling to what God has promised. And he, he appeals to that sense of security, but then he, he goes further <clears throat> in verse uh, 20, 21. And he says, you know, earthly treasure is temporary and, and corruptible. Eternal treasure is secure and incorruptible because there's a, there's a fundamental reason. You see that in verse 21. He says, for, let me explain to you why you should care about eternal treasure. And, and there's a deeper motive here for us because where your treasure is that's where your heart's going to go there's a more important reason to live banking on God's heavenly reward than just that reward is secure and it's because your heart will inevitably follow your treasure what you hope in what you think is going to give you life what you think is going to make you happy your heart will go there Uh, you know I, I really don't care about the weather in Glorietta except when my kids are there on summer camp right I don't care about crime rates in Glorietta or Santa Fe where they're doing missions work. It doesn't bother me at all until my kids are traveling there. And then you will not, I will not be surprised if I check the weather several times that week, just wondering how they're doing, what are they facing? Because where my treasure is, it's where my heart is. Just inevitably think about where they are because I love them. And that's just true across the board. What you treasure what you hope in, what you think is your security or your comfort or your control, your heart will go toward. Your thoughts will gravitate about. You'll mull over, worry about. That will produce anxiety. Just remember, the heart in the Bible is not the gooey emotional part of us. It's the reasoning, wanting, decision-making part of us. So what you think is going to give you life is going to drive how you make decisions. What do you think is going to make you secure? What do you think is going to help you be in control? What do you think is going to give you comfort? Whatever your particular temptations are, that's where you're going to drive. That's going to drive your decision-making, your attention, your focus. It'll all be shaped by what you think is your greatest hope for joy. It'll all be shaped by what you think is your greatest hope for joy. And so what he's really pressing on us, beloved, is it's not just our stuff that's insecure, it's you. You're not secure if your heart is pursuing insecure treasure. Because it will lead you away from the living God. Where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be. And we ourselves are the ones who need saving. Now, you won't do that. Jesus is laying out these contrasts. He's, He's urging this on us. But you'll never put your treasure in heaven unless you first put your trust in Jesus. What would make you convinced 
to cling to these promises that God has given, only if you believe they're real and reliable. Because the, pay, the paycheck is very tangible. If the paycheck gets shorter, you're going to feel that fast. And you will not trust God in that moment that your righteousness is better than cutting corners and getting a better commission or whatever it is if you're not confident that God is a good and generous father. And maybe that's a problem because your father was kind of stingy and miserly. And you don't really, your instincts are like dads cling to stuff. And they don't give us good gifts. And if that's the struggle that you have, I'm, I'm sorry, I grieve over that for you. Um, and I just want to urge you that that's not what our Heavenly Father is like. He is a generous and good God. He is holy and righteous. I mean, he's just. He's, he's good. And he's good in, in all the senses of that word. He doesn't tolerate evil. He doesn't suffer fools. But anyone who comes to him repenting, trusting, confessing, and humble, he lavishes his love on We know because he lavished his son on us. He gave us his only son. What can convince you that God is good and trustworthy and loves you uh, more than what he's already given you? That, that he sent his own son. That your sin separated you from him and earned you hell. And he gave his son for you. What could convince you that Jesus is worth trusting more than seeing what he has already given for you, which he gave up? The, the, the comfort, the security, the joy. I mean, I don't know how you imagine the eternal life of God the Son with God the Father exactly, but I know that he was eternally rich and he became poor for us so that we could have the inheritance of a secure joy. So the wealth of God's kingdom in Christ could be ours. That's what he did for us. When you see that and you begin to get the heart that will actually trust God and store up treasure in heaven, that's what you got to do. You got to put your trust in Jesus so that you'll store treasure there. So you'll trust his reward. So that when I say, when Jesus says, your father's going to reward you, you'll say, I, I know he will. I know he will because he's already given the down payment. He secured us in Christ. And he's given us his spirit to keep us until that day. What we're fixated on, where we set our hopes, will, will drive our life. <clears throat> so invest in eternal rewards. See the goodness of God in Christ. Turn from your sins. Hope in him. And when you do that, let that grow and encourage you to see the good fathers, good gifts, the hope in him. Then Jesus kind of seems like he gives a hard left turn, verse 22. Uh, treasure on earth, treasure in heaven. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be. And then the eye is the lamp of the body. What? What does that even mean? So point two, evil eyes. And in verses 22 and, and 23... What Jesus is pressing us to is to look through a generous lens, to look at life, look at the world through a generous lens. Now, how on earth do we get that from these dense, obscure statements? The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. So then, obviously, if the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Everybody wrestles with these verses. Um, they are dense. They're poetic. They involve this metaphor of eyes and sight. So the first thing to see is he's contrasting blindness with sightedness. Uh, someone who can see and has light and can see light versus those who are dark and blind. And that's the sort of image at the base sort of physical level. It's a little confusing, so let's work through it. He says the eye is the lamp of the body. 
Now, we're very scientific people. We know a lot about how anatomy works, more than they did in Jesus' day. So we're probably used to our understanding. Our immediate thought of sight is that light enters into our eyes through the pupils, right? Through the lenses. Uh, and that, that's, what, that's how we see, is light comes in to us. But this metaphor of the eye as a lamp is really pressing us to think more about the, the experience of sight, not its mechanics. Um, we, we think about the mechanical way it works. Uh, and so we often ignore or just don't think very much about the experience of how things work. And the Bible almost always is talking about the experiential level. Uh, what, what you can observe, just every, everybody could observe whether or not you understood the scientific working of the eye or not. So if you're thinking about the experience of sight, let me try to help us do that. Try to think like a first century person who heard Jesus might think. So you realize that whatever your eye is fixed on, that's what you see. Right? So, so for me, it's y'all right now. And whatever's behind me, I know it's there because I've got object permanence. I, I know it's there, but I, I can't see anything back there. It's all dark. It's not literally dark. You can tell that it's illuminated. But to me, it's dark. I can't see it. Wherever my eye is looking, that's what I see. That's how that image works. The eye illuminates what's in, what you can see. Now, it requires an external source of light too, but... This is the way Jesus is helping us to think about how we gaze at the world. What we look at and, and how we look when we see the world, right? That when your eye looks at something, that's what's visible to you. It's the lamp for your body. And if, if your eyes can see, then the rest of your body lives in that light. So I can pick up these pages and turn them, right? Move my Bible up and down very easily because my eye gives light to the whole body. I won't stumble going down these stairs, Lord willing. <laughs> Hope I didn't just jinx that. Um, because I can see. And so my eyes will give light to my feet. But if it's dark, if you're blind, if you can't see, your cataracts move in and cloud your vision or whatever it is, then the whole body suffers from that, right? People who lack sight have to have a whole host of strategies to be able to navigate a world where they can't see what their hand is touching. They can't watch where their foot is falling. That's what he, so there's that, there's that, that's how the image works, right? The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, if you can see, your whole body is, is full of light. It, it, the, whole, the whole body lives in this light. But if your eye is bad, if you can't see, your whole body is full of darkness. Your whole body lives in the darkness. But man, Jesus is using some strange words in the Greek for, for both a healthy eye and a, and a bad eye. He's not using the normal words for health. Uh, and it's a word play that we just translators uh, can't, you just can't do it. You can't bring it off in English. I'm just going to have to explain it to you. So when Jesus says that if your eye is healthy, the word he uses is literally simple. So if you've got your own copy of the Bible, you might could put that in the, in the margin. That, that if your eye is healthy, means if your eye is, is single or simple, and which in the, in the realm, one thing it can mean is literally healthy, like it's doing what it's supposed to do. But it's also a metaphor um, for uh, undistracted. And having just come off this lesson where Jesus says, you know, seek treasures in heaven and not on earth, I think there's clearly a wordplay there that what your eye is fixed on should be undistracted. It's the kingdom of God, the glory of God, the eternal reward that's coming with the Father. So if your eye is fixed on what's good, your whole body will be full of light. Your life will be affected by that. And, and then there's a, a third level this metaphor works because a, a good, single, simple healthy eye is also a metaphor for generosity. A good eye 
looks on the world is an eye that looks generously. And you can see that particularly in the contrast with the evil eye. Uh, the art, ESV goes with bad for that translation. The Greek word is the word for bad or evil. There's a word play there. If your eye is evil or, or bad, right? if, it's, if, it's a, if it's evil in the sense that it's not doing physically what it's supposed to do, it's physically blind. But the, the metaphor for an evil eye is it's a stingy, miserly eye. You can hear that specifically in Matthew 20, 15. That's the story where Jesus tells where a, a man goes out and hires workers to go work in his field. And he promises them a day's wage, a denarius. It was the Roman equivalent. One day's wage for day work. And he goes back at the, the third, the fifth, the ninth. And right all the, all the way through the day, he's hiring more workers and putting them in the field. And this, there's a group that was only worked for one hour by the time he's done. And the group that's worked all day, all 12 hours. And they pay, at the end of the day, they pay out their workers, and the, the guys who only work for one hour, he, he pays a whole denarius. He pays the whole day's wage for these guys who only work for an hour. And the guys at the end are like, oh, we're going to get a ton. And when they come up to the front, he gets them a day's wage too. And they're like, wait, this is unjust. And the master's reply is, well, can I not do it with my own money? If I want to be generous, can't I be generous? Or is your eye evil that you would begrudge my generosity? So it's Matthew 20, 15, you can hear that, that metaphor right, right in its context, that that stingy eye is the eye that says, I got what I deserve, and they got grace, and I want some of that, and I'm not happy with that. My eye is evil and stingy. Is your eye bad? Is your eye stingy? Or is your eye good? Is it generous and self-giving? And Jesus' point with all this wordplay, right? This lamp and the light, and good, bad, generous, stingy, is to press on us what he's just said. Treasures in heaven versus treasures on earth and where your heart goes and to, and to do a little self-examination. You'll, there's no command in these verses. He's just telling us the truth. If your eye's good, your body will live in the light. If your eye's stingy, your body will live in the darkness. It's a call to self-examination. To assess the world with truth, the way God assesses the world. What is your gaze fixed on? What does your heart gravitate to? The way your, your body will follow wherever your eyes are going, your heart will follow wherever your treasure goes. You'll walk into greater and greater godliness. Your soul will walk into greater and greater holiness. Or you'll walk into greater and greater wickedness and darkness. So the question to ask, as Jesus is pressing this on us, is what is your internal gaze fixed on? What drives your decision making? Are you generally generous? Or are you generally stingy in the decisions you make? Do you approach life through a generous lens that wants to give as freely as you've been given to? Or do you approach life with a self-preserving lens? I'm getting for me. And I want what they've got. Because the warning, the warning Jesus gives is that if, if what's supposed to be light in you is really dark, how great is the darkness? It's not just that this generosity thing is a problem for you, but you can make up for it other places. It's that how you think about treasure is going to drive everything. So what, 
if you can answer the question, what is my heart generally fixed on? You'll, you'll go a long way to asking what, is, what do you really think is your ultimate good? Not what would you say in Sunday school, what do you know to be true, but how do you really live? What's functionally true, instinctively? So I think some examples would help before we, before we wrap this up. Try to make this concrete. How do we think about that? Let's start with savings accounts. <clears throat> savings accounts are fine. Probably wise. If they've got a goal. It's my wisdom suggestion to you. If they've got a goal. So, so what do I mean by that? Well, so it's not foolish to see that you might have financial difficulty and you want to feed your family and care for those that God has entrusted to your, your charge and, and have provision made for that. So maybe you decide... The thing I've always heard is a six-month emergency fund, right? Have in the bank six months worth of whatever income you've got so that if that income gets cut off, you've got at least a six-month lead time to figure something out. So you figure that out and you decide, that's, I'm going to make provision to care for those God has entrusted to me. That's wise and good. But then what happens when you've done the work and you've saved six months? You stop. You don't then say, oh, but seven months would be better. Oh, eight months would be better. Oh, nine months would be better. Oh, 10, oh, 12. Oh, oh, just more and more and more, right? Then you, then you start to say, oh, this savings account that was a wise thing to care for people may be becoming an inordinate desire for my security. I'm getting my hope here. I'm not just being wise, but I'm grabbing for myself. So they got a goal, right? Save it and then stop. Save enough for your next car or your daughter's wedding or whatever it is. Whatever's coming up is on your horizon that you're going to need to save for. Save for it. Make a plan. Be wise. But then when you've made the plan and you've executed it, do something else with that money. But where's the most security in an eternal account is in heaven. So savings accounts are fine. Provide some earthly security and wisdom. Take what God has given you and be wise with it. But if you're going to listen to Jesus and say your treasure on earth is going to fail and treasure in heaven is eternal before you save, your first question should be, what would God have me give? Save enough, be wise, but Paul, I just used wisdom from Paul in both first and second Corinthians, he addresses church's giving. Give first. In first Corinthians 16 2, he says, you know, we should have proportional giving on the first day of the week. Everybody should set something aside as God prospers you. Now we've sort of exploded that phrase over the course of Christian history and informed by the Old Testament to say a percentage of your income, right? As God prospers you, set something aside. So the more you make, the more you give. Which I say, just an easy way to do that is to get a percentage. So the more you make, the more you give, and the less you, make, the less you feel obligated to give, set something proportional, do it on the first day of the week, that's the Lord's Day gathering. And then in 2 Corinthians 9, he says, do it ahead of time, determine ahead of time. So you're not making sort of guilt decisions in the moment but you're deliberately investing the resources God has given you in the work of the church together. It's part of our church covenant that we sustain the work of ministry together. It's how churches, God has seen fit to organize our churches so that we sustain the work of ministry. So think about it ahead of time. Set a proportion and then do that first. A tenth is the customary amount. It's a customary starting point, the tithe. That's what tithe means, a tenth. It's not a command in the New Testament. But it's the custom that is very well informed by all the giving practices that God in, in, instructed Israel in the Old Testament. So we're not under the law in the same way, but the law gives us wisdom. So that's one, one, one practical application. How do you think about saving? Is saving inherently wrong? No. Is oversaving a sin? Yeah, probably. 
Watch your heart. Set your goals. Think about what you'll reasonably need. Give first. Save some. And then be generous. You might think about your car. Um, take this, take this. Teaching and buying our, 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 our cars. cars. It's almost impossible to live a functional life in America without a car. Not entirely impossible. I think in West Texas it might be impossible, actually. Um, our public transportation is not very good. Um, we're all spread out. So you need a vehicle. And one of the really tragic things about uh, falling behind and getting into poverty is that this thing that requires money and maintenance is sort of essential for you to be able to get ahead. And once you get behind and you can't afford that, then you, I mean, you're really stuck unless you have a community that's going to come around and help you. Which in part, beloved, is our responsibility as Christians to love and care for our neighbors and recognize things like that. But that's another sermon for another day. Let's think about you and your decisions and mine about, about cars, right? Um, it can be fun to drive a nice car. It's not sinful. It can be good to enjoy that. Some people really love rebuilding them and tinkering with them. I don't. Some of you do. That's fine. But when your car begins to keep you from loving others, that becomes the problem. So one of that is like a time issue. Do I love my car so much that I spend more time on it than I do caring about people in the church or neglecting other responsibilities I've had? That, that can be a problem. Uh, when someone needs a ride, how quickly does the thought of them like scratching your paint or messing up your interior come to mind? That's a sign that your story, your, that car has become a treasure, an inordinate treasure to you. <laughs> when it you know, keeping it nice and clean and pristine will keep you from loving people who need help. Now, it's possible to overreact to this teaching, right, and go too, too cheap as well. So some people have taken that, that attitude, like I, just the bare minimum for something that will get me from A to B, which is fine. But listen, if you're spending more time worrying about your car breaking down and spending money to repair it than you would if you just spent a little more on a car that's going to work, then that's sort of the other way that your car is keeping you from loving people. You just have to always repair. Now, I'm not saying if you're stuck and that's the best you can do, then you do that and you trust God and he will care for you, right? But as we're thinking through these things and how to, how to make wise decisions with all that God has given us and invest for the kingdom, the question is, what will help me honor God and love my neighbor? Enjoy all the things God's given me as I honor God and love my neighbor, love God and love my neighbor. And the most uh, probably prickly one that I've mentioned so far is to give a little more thought to is our children. Our kids, let me say it very clearly, are an unqualified good. Children are a blessing from the Lord. I hope you delight in your children. I hope you find great joy in being their parents, in the midst, even in the midst of difficulties and stresses they cause. You should have no shame about delighting and treasuring and loving your kids. <clears throat> so let me ask parents, do you look with a generous eye on them or with a stingy one? Those God has entrusted to you closest to home, your nearest neighbors. Do you look on them with an eye full of generosity to bless as you've been blessed? Or do you tend to be stingy toward them? That's what our culture would have you think. I think that's the default of our flesh would have us think. They just suck my resources, take my time. You know, I can't spend it on my own vacation, my own hobbies, because I got to spend it on them. And that kind of attitude is what the world is telling us, and then it must be thoroughly rejected. And we must be as generous towards them as our Heavenly Father is to us because we love and delight in them. And that doesn't mean spoiling them. That doesn't mean giving them everything they want, just like our Father doesn't give us everything we want. But what's good for them? What will bless and secure and 
help them grow with our time and our talent and our treasure, okay? But, so there, there's that. Be generous in your household. But there's a tendency that we can have, and I think in particularly traditional cultures like West Texas still largely is, there can be a way of over-treasuring our kids as if, they're, if they exist for, for our sense of pride and our well-being. Of wanting to keep them and cling to them and hoard them for ourselves. Children are not given to you so that you can keep them. Children, to use the Solomon's metaphor, are an arrow in the hand of a warrior. Arrows are meant to be sharpened and sent out. And so my question that challenges me as a parent, I hope to challenge all of us, is are we teaching our children to look at the world with a generous eye? Are we teaching our kids when we talk about their futures, when we dream about what they might grow up into be, is it mainly about how they can store up treasure on earth? Or are we teaching our kids that their lives should be given storing up treasure in heaven? Do you talk with your kids mainly about good jobs, financial security, good homes? Or do you think that it would be a really successful parenting win if your children gave their lives in overseas missions? if they made really risky decisions because they think it would help serve the kingdom of God. That they should give their time, talents, and treasures away. That they should forsake their own comforts for the sake of loving others. I'm afraid we are very quick to think mainly about ourselves and how I might sacrifice. But for our kids really just inculcate the world's values. Get a good job, be financially stable, have some children, live a safe life. Your kids aren't yours to keep. Your kids are yours to sharpen and send out. Generous eye in the world. How can I bless the world with these kids? So, your time, talents, and treasures. Is your fundamental outlook to give or to hoard? To be generous or to be stingy. And Jesus is warning us that if that part of you that is fixed on light is actually fixed on darkness, if that generosity versus stinginess you think you can sort of sequester off, you're fooling yourself. Because that stinginess will lead your entire life into self-absorption and away from the Lord. Which drives us then to conclude with the last verse here, the inevitable choice we have to face. The inevitable choice. You have to choose a generous father. You can't serve two masters, Jesus says in verse 24. You just can't do it. We think we can. We'd like to try. We're tempted to give some here to God and then keep some here for ourselves. Do this bit with godly piety and then just right over here, this thing's for my comfort and my ease. And you know, if God doesn't quite come through, I've got the bank account. But even on a purely practical level, I mean, it's fairly evident. If you're trying to work two jobs, eventually your two managers are going to ask something that conflicts. You're going to have to pick one. They're going to schedule you for the same time, or they're going to, one is going to schedule you at a time when you can't show up to work for the next one with, you know, and do the demands of your job. At some point, you'll have to satisfy one desire and, and let the other one go. But, you know, Jesus is talking about more than job conflicts. He's talking about loyalty and affection. He's talking about serving masters, despising and treasuring 
loving and hating. So he's not just talking about sort of balancing conflicting demands. He's talking about who do you love? Will you love God? Or will you love some lesser thing? Some created thing? You can't serve God and money. And if you've got the ESV, the footnote there says the Greek word is mammon, uh, which is a big, bigger word than money. It doesn't mean anything in English, but um, it's the idea for all of your stuff. Not just your money, but all of your possessions. That's mammon. Cars, your houses, your bank accounts, your clothing, everything you have, all of your resources. And you, you can't serve God and stuff. You can't do it. You can't love God and love your things. You can enjoy your things as a good gift from God, but that's because you love God. And if you love God and you're enjoying your things, and he says, get rid of them, you, like Abraham, even with your beloved son, will say, okay, over to you with a generous eye. If you love your stuff, eventually God's commands will have to be rejected. You can't keep commands and chase wealth. Uh, it's interesting, there's no mention here of money serving us. Jesus assumes that it's a choice of who we will serve. Now, I think that's one of the great deceptions of our age, is that we can just make all of our stuff serve us. But it's not a question of whether you'll have a master. The only question is which master you will have. If you think your comfort comes from your stuff, you will serve mammon. You will make decisions. You will align your affections to keep whatever money is coming so that you can be comfortable. If you think your confidence and security comes from your stuff, you will serve mammon. You will make decisions, you will arrange your life, you will order your priorities so the income keeps coming so that you can be confident and secure. If you think your clout and your reputation comes from your stuff, you will serve mammon. You will make the decisions at work or in the community to do with your stuff what you need so that other people will like you. It's inevitable. None of us can be undrafted free agents. None of us can be in charge of our own contracts. We, all of us, will serve someone or something. It's not whether, it's which. And what Jesus is pressing us here is, man, serve a good and generous father. Because mammon will kick you to the curb. <laughs> mammon does not love you. Your money does not love you. Your house does not love you. Your car does not love you. Your reputation does not love you. As soon as you fail, whatever requirements it is, that gets coming, bringing that stuff in your life, they'll just abandon you. It's your father, the one in the heavens who spoke the world into existence, loves you. And when you kick him to the curb, he's going to send his son to get you back. When we see that, that God is a good and generous father, we love and trust him. He gave his son for us, and we will serve him and not our stuff. He'll do the work in our heart by the work of his spirit. We see his glory so that we'll invest in that eternal joy. He wean us from thinking, and this earth can give me what I want, or at least a good backup plan. And he'll show us that God is entirely reliable, completely trustworthy, deeply and perfectly generous. The mercy, the grace that he showed in sending his son isn't a front 
that hides a stingy underbelly. He is perfect. He is whole. He is complete. He has a single, undistracted eye. And so what we see in Christ is who he is through and through. Love him. Serve him. And you'll be investing in eternal joy. Let's pray. Who else could we come to but you? Who else holds all the world and owns all of the resources and and disposes of them exactly according to your will so that even your creation looks to you for its sustenance? You open your hands and everyone rejoices and the birds are fed and the cattle grow, the rains fall and the fields sprout. You close them and everything is withheld because you, Father, hold all the world in your hands. And we thank you that you have opened your hand and sent your son and that he spread his hands and died for us and that you extended the power of your right hand and raised him from the dead. And we look for the day when he comes that he will bring an imperishable and defiled and unfading reward with him that our life is hidden with him and is secure and that your spirit is serving as a down payment in our hearts, in our souls, in our lives to keep us until that day so that we can be confident that you are keeping us until that day. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.